Hey Jubilee, we're so excited that you've joined us online today to listen to this message in our series, Unseen. If you haven't already heard, you can get better connected to our church by creating an account on JFC Portal or JFC Mobile. If you're on your computer, just go to jfc.org forward slash portal. And if you're on your mobile device, just go to your app store and search Jubilee Fellowship Church. If you'd like to give, just go to jfc.org forward slash give. Thank you so much and have a great day. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. It's going to be a fun, fun morning. I am so excited and honored and privileged to be teaching the sixth message in our series, Unseen. And really the, the thought behind this series was that whether you believe it or like it or not, we are all involved in a battle that is unseen. There is a spiritual battle going on all around us. And the, the funny thing is, is so many believers, so many Christians are so unaware of this concept. And I find so many people who are, who are uh, injured and, and, and in a rough spot, and they don't even realize they're in the midst of a battle. And so it was on our heart as pastors to, to convey that we need to recognize, one, this fight. We need to begin to fight this fight. And ultimately, because of Christ, we will win this fight. Amen. So I get the privilege of sharing about praise and worship as a weapon in this battle that we fight. But before I do, I wanted to say a huge thank you to Pastor John and Chris and the JFC staff and really the entire JFC family and beyond for your prayers. Uh, see, November 1st, a couple weeks ago, we got to meet our sixth member of our family, my fourth daughter, Hope Aria Wood. She was born at 1045. <laughs> Believe it or not, that pacifier is a regular size pacifier. <laughs> She's four pounds, two ounces, a little premium. So she was in the NICU for uh, a couple weeks and she was on and off of oxygen, on and off of a feeding tube. And um, it was a kind of a difficult time to be honest. And so your prayers uh, because of your prayers, this last Thursday, we had the opportunity to dress our little daughter up and drive her down to Castle Rock in our home. And so we are so, so excited to have her here. Now, that, that means that I am lacking on much sleep right now. So if you would have the uh, patience with me as I begin. So let's go on and start this before we do. Let's go on and take this before the Lord and pray because I believe his spirit and his presence wants to do something special here this morning. Father, we lift you up in this place. Lord, as, it, as the song said, we're no longer a slave to fear, but we are children of God. And Lord, we know that it is because of your goodness that this, this happened, God, that this has taken place. And so we right now know that you are good. And Lord, your word says that if we ask you for something, you will not hesitate to give it, Lord. So we ask, God, for one thing this morning, your presence. God, because without your anointing, without your presence, this is just another service. This is just another message. But God, with your anointing, lives can be changed. God, directions and legacies can be changed. And so we ask for the same power that rose Christ up from the dead to be in this place here this morning. God, we invite you, we magnify you, and we glorify you. 
God, we lift up the victims in this terrible tragedy, the victims' families, God, uh, in Paris. Jesus, we ask that you would comfort them. And God, that uh, though the situation is terrible and awful, that you would use it, God, to draw more people to you and to your love and to your name. God, we just lift them up today. God, we ask for an end to this evil organization that because of the glory of God will bow their knee to you, Jesus, and be done in Jesus' name. And God, we just lift them up to you. We glorify you. We ask, God, that you would just continue to edify our church. Lead us and guide us, God. Direct us in every day. And it's in your name I pray, everyone said. Amen. Amen. Now, when I say worship in today's day and age, there are literally so many different meanings and connotations to that. See, when I grew up, worship was a portion of the service that uh, usually a lady was playing an organ and a lady right next to her was playing a piano and every single member in the church had held a hymnal. See, but in the last 30 years, that's evolved to something so um, eclectic, just so different. I mean, when I say worship, some people out there may think, oh yeah, are you talking about the newest, latest uh, album of this or this style of music or, or uh, whatever it might be? A lot of people have different things. So I'm going to start this message by talking about what worship is not so that I can kind of get down to the root of what God really desires from us as a body when in regards to worship to him. So what worship is not, what worship to God is not, worship is not just music. Now it is a great and biblical facilitator, but it's not just music. Now I'll explain that later. Worship is not the lighting. I'm gonna ruffle some feathers here, okay? Worship is not the volume. Worship is not a musical style, okay? It's not a genre that you type in in your iTunes or on Spotify. I mean, it's crazy nowadays. When you think about it, you've got folk worship, traditional worship, contempo worship. You've got all of these different styles, but worship isn't a style, okay? It's not a style. Worship is not just a portion of a service, although we set aside a portion in our services to allow us to give worship to God, Worship is not self-serving. Okay, now this one is so interesting because I guarantee that 99.9% of the church agrees fully with this concept that worship is not self-serving. And yet you would be astounded at how many opinions there are about worship regarding what we get from it. After services, oh boy, I just, I love when you lead worship because I just get so much from it. I just get completely, or boy, I just don't like when that worship leader leads. I just get nothing. It's just like dry dust is coming out of his, his nose. Um, or, or like if they would only sing that one song, the heavens would open down and the floodgates of heaven would just rain down upon this place. And, uh, and boy, if you would just stop singing that one song, God would actually move in this place because it's all about him. <laughs> worship is not self-serving. In fact, the definition of worship is ascribing worth to something greater than yourself. Worship is not exclusive to certain people in the church only, i.e. worship pastors, pastors, missionaries, passionate people, or emotional people. Worship is not exclusive to just that. In fact, God intended that 100% of his body 
would engage in this wonderful practice of worship to his name. It's not meant for a select few. It's literally meant for every single one of us. Honestly, worship is not something that can be defined by a moment because worship is a lifestyle and it can only really be defined in the heart. And that's why I don't want to teach a message this morning about the theology of worship or facts or steps to how to become a better worshiper. What I want to share this morning are just some thoughts in the last uh, 20 plus years that I've led worship. I've been a senior pastor. I've been a youth pastor. And some things that God has just shown me, I want to be able to share with you. Can I do that this morning? Okay, because we're a family. It's not just me up here. I just want to share what's on my heart and what God is going to So I got just two simple thoughts um, about worship that I have experienced through the years. Number one, true worship can be one of the greatest weapons we use in our fight against the enemy. And I'll say that again. True worship can be one of the greatest weapons we use to fight against our enemy. And here's why. Because the posture of worship is a posture of humility. It's literally coming down on your knees in a sense and saying, I don't have the answers to this. I'm not great enough to be able to even accomplish this, but I lift my eyes up to the one who can. Basically what it is, is we live in a society full of problems. Anybody out there? Hey, troubles, problems all around. Anybody have bills they can't pay, problems they can't solve, um, issues that they can't resolve? And what worship will do is put us in a posture where we, instead of focusing on our problems, focusing in on our issues, we're focusing in on the problem solver. Let me give an example here. The last couple weeks, my daughter was in the NICU at St. Joseph's, St. Joe's is what we were calling it. Um, And it was... Uh, really, really difficult. We, we stayed in the hospital a few nights. Uh, my wife had a couple, couple complicated issues, so we stayed in the hospital there. Then we were moved to a boarding room, and then eventually we had to commute from Castle Rock to downtown Denver to see her each and every day. And let me tell you something. When you have a little tiny baby, it's very difficult to leave that baby. I mean, you want to be by her side uh, all the time, except for when she's just crying, then you kind of say, Mom, go in and take care of this. But anyways... <laughs> It's very, very difficult to leave her, but here's why it was a little more easy. And Gina and I, my wife, would always say this to each other every night that we left the hospital. She's in the right place, and she's with the right people, that if anything were to happen, she is with the people that can solve that problem. Now listen up. God is trying to speak to his church and saying, you're in the right place. You're serving the right person. You're serving the right God who has all the answers to solve any problem that you could ever have. And the problem is, is that we'll forget it just because we're human. What worship does is gets us back into a position where we remember there's no problem too big. There's no issue too strong. There's nothing that our God cannot do. And that's what worship allows us to do. It allows us to see him as the problem solver. In in, um, the word, there's this king Jehoshaphat, and he's a godly king. He's the king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And he's a godly man, but he faces this trial in his kingdom that two vast armies are coming against him. They outnumber his kingdom three to one. He's 
freaking out, okay? Again, a human nature. Uh, the people around him are freaking out. They're all terrified. So Jehoshaphat, he gathers prophets all together, all around him, and he says, hey, does God have anything to say about this? I know that he's defended our nation in the past. I know that he can in the future, but I want to hear it from his voice. What does he have to say? And in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 15, one of the prophets speaks up and he says, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours. It's like emphatic pause right there so it can sink in. For the battle is not yours, but God's. You, that later on in verse 17, it says, you will not have to fight this battle. So take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. That word, see the deliverance, is literally observe. So what he's saying is, he's not saying go get your weapons, train real hard, get this thing going, and, and go charge the enemy. He literally says, take up your position, stand and watch what I can do. I love that. Later on in the chapter, Jehoshaphat's trying to gather more counselors, and they say, here's what God says to do. Gather up the choir and send them out before the army and let them walk before... Great strategy, right? Can you imagine like talking to Mr. President, here's the deal. Let's go and send the Lakewood Highlands Ranch, Lone Tree, and Castle Rock worship teams ahead of our, of our troops there. And, uh, and that'll be a good thing. This is literally what happened. They gather up the choir. They march out ahead of the army to an army that outnumbers them three to one. They begin to sing, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And his love endures forever. And for those of you who don't like repetitious songs, you won't like this song, but it's, it, they sing it over and over and over and over again. Give thanks to the Lord. And what happens? Something changes in the atmosphere. And this army that to the physical eyes looked greater than theirs begins to get confused, begins to something is, is disruptive, like with the sound system right now. And, and they're going... What, what's going on here? And, and they begin to slaughter one another. They literally destroy each other. So that by the time Israel's army actually gets there, not one person is left standing. Israel has won the battle without having to lift a weapon. That's God's intention for the church. Stand and watch what I can do. And that's what worship is about. Sometimes, man, I'll be in worship and I'll just have my hands lifted and I might be headed right for it in the midst of a storm and a trial and I'll be singing, I'm no longer a slave to fear, but I am a child of God. And I will literally be picturing my great redeemer, my savior, my king and my friend going before me with his mighty sword, taking care of all of the slander that my enemy is accusing me of, taking care of all of the troubles that are in my way. It's why sometimes I get so passionate when I worship. And then if I'm coming out of a battle and, and I'm on the mountaintop, I will lift my hands and picture how my God won that battle for me. And it is passionate, man. And sometimes people are like, you look like a goofball. <laughs> it's because you don't see what I see. Right. You don't see what I see. But you need to. Because God's doing it for you and you and you. 
There's a story in Acts 16, Paul and Silas, where they go into a region to preach the gospel, and there's a woman who's possessed with an evil spirit that allows her to tell, the, tell fortunes, and she's making a lot of money for those who own her, and this rubs Paul the wrong way. And Paul, just he's walking down the street and literally turns around, and he's like, get out! And the demonic spirit leaves completely. I love the power of God. Just get out! All right? And, and the demonic spirit just leaves. Now, this makes the people that own her very upset. And so they throw Paul and Silas in prison. Now, it's not like the prisons that we have today. Yeah. It's dark. It's dingy. It probably stinks. They're chained to a wall, shackles on their hands and feet. Okay? They don't get to take restroom breaks. And they're there. I mean, that's that moment that you go, God, I really thought I was kind of doing a good thing here for you. I really wish that you would have kept me from this position right here. Yes. That's not what Paul and Silas did. It says that in the midnight hour, when it was darkest, when they had literally no hope to see with their physical eyes, they begin to lift up a song of praise. Let's just picture for a moment that they lift up the same song that Israel did. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his love endures forever. Can you imagine the other prisoners? Like, these dudes are crazy. Like, what are they even singing about? They're here because of this God. But they don't stop. They continue to sing. They continue to sing. All of a sudden, the earth's foundations begin to shake. Something happens in the atmosphere. I mean, rumbling is going on and the chains, the shackles fall off of every single prisoner in the prison. Every single chain is broken in that moment. They stop and every prisoner is like, okay, these guys might have something here. The jailer is terrified because in Rome, if, they, if a jailer would have let any prisoner escape, their heads would be on the line. So he literally takes his sword, is about to kill himself. Paul and Silas run up to him and say, don't stop, we're all still here. Now that would have been, I, maybe I'm just a little too honest, but if a cha the chains fell off of me, I'd be like, Silas, let's get out of here. But that's not what they do. They go, we're all here. We're not going anywhere. Now, Paul then didn't go, now here's a track, the four spiritual laws, and let me take you through a great little session on how, why you should serve Jesus and blah, blah, blah. No, the, literally the next thing that is said by this jailer is, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Are you guys awake? Yeah. This is awesome. This concept that in the midst of this just simple song by two men in a dark, dingy prison creates such a rumble that all the chains fell off and maybe it's just God's way of showing his power so that one man can come to know his power to make the old new. It's powerful. It's a powerful thing that's taken place there. He literally that night goes home and baptizes his entire family. Has Paul and Silas baptized his entire family. And one person is added to the book of life. Amen? Amen. I love being a musician. 
I've been a musician since I was a kid, and the idea of it is so cool. And why I love it, anybody that knows me knows that I love playing instruments, especially acoustic instruments, because of the concept and the theory of resonance. And resonance is something that a lot of people don't quite understand. In fact, this guy was supposed to be up here a lot sooner, but <laughs> he's dragging. <laughs> this guitar here, a lot of people will look at a guitar and they'll go, boy, you know, uh, th those strings, they sound good. And, you know, it could just, it's like you're hearing the strings and they sound beautiful, right? But you're not really hearing the strings. See, because all the strings are doing are vibrating. Okay, what you're actually hearing is the wood on this guitar. See, because what resonance is, is it takes the vibrations of something so simple and it causes vibrations to take place in the earth that mimic and amplify the exact same frequency. So you could take even a drum head and pound on the, the head without the actual drum and it'll sound like garbage. But you put it on a drum head and you tune it and it resounds. It's also called reverberation. Something so cool that I do is that I will actually take my piano. I'll sit at it and I'll set my, uh, here, you can come take this. I'll set my uh, foot on the sustain pedal and I'll sing into the piano, okay? And it literally sounds like my voice is being recorded back to me. It's why, well, um, if you've ever been to Israel, you'll get a chance to stop in some cathedrals and it'll be like 10 people in this cathedral singing a song, but it sounds like thousands, it's the same concept, it's reverberation or uh, resonance. Now this same thing that was created by God also exists in the spiritual world, okay? It also exists. Have you ever walked into a church and you couldn't identify it, you couldn't put your hand on it, you couldn't pinpoint, but something powerful was just in the room and it was just ringing your spirit like, wow, Something is just on the money here. Or a pastor was preaching and, and something was stirring in your heart and you couldn't, you couldn't even control it. It's because God uses resonance to ring, to ring out his presence. The Bible says deep Christ to deep. Okay. The Bible also says that the same spirit that rose Christ up from the dead now lives in you. So when something pleases the heart of the Father, the Holy Spirit, it should resound in his entire body. And when it resounds, it amplifies the noise. Are you guys following here? Yes. I just said this to my, uh, my daughters, my, my oldest right here, Faith is in the room. I said this to them last night. They're like, Dad, your message was great, but I don't know what you were talking about with that resonance thing. I was like, you'll get it one day. Um, but in any case, this same stirring exists. This same thing, man, when you know the anointing that is on somebody, sometimes it just can't be stopped. Why? It's not because of the person. It's because what's in that person. It's because what's in that person is also in other persons and in other persons. And it should reverberate. And that's what God wants his church to do. An unbeliever should walk into this room and feel something special is in this room. This is unlike any other faith. This is unlike any other religion. They have something that's real and it's tangible. This concept, I mean, when my wife and I first started uh, teaching our, our leading worship at the Lakewood campus, we would every single week go through this thing where people would come up to us afterwards and say, hey, I want you to meet my friend. They've never gone to church before. They're, they're not believers, but they walked into the room and instantly began crying. They said, something in here is telling me I'm home. 
And they went on and they said, they said, what must we do to be saved, basically? Show us to Jesus. Show us. This is before the message has even begun. This is before the anointed, passionate announcements. <laughs> before anything's taken place, before a song has been sung or an instrument's been played, something's already resounding in the heart because the Holy Spirit wants to resonate in his church. Something about when the people of God lift up his name. The Bible says when he is lifted up, he will draw all men unto him. Something about when he is lifted up. That's why it's so special when God's church comes into a place and says, I will give you all my worship. And when everyone decides corporately to do that, something special is about to happen in that church. Mark my words. You guys okay? There's a story about this with um, my brother. We were 15, 16 years old. I was probably 14 years old. And uh, my brother and I, we, we both loved the Lord greatly. But when he turned about 16, he, he decided to um, kind of take another path. He was hurt and had a, had a lot of things going on. And so I guess the technical term is backslide. And, and he had his moment where he, he uh, just turned his back on the Lord. And it really frustrated me as the the younger brother, you know, I was the annoying younger brother. And I would talk to him all the time. I would say like, oh, Jake, please, you need to serve Jesus. Please come back to the Lord. Give up your sin. You're a sinner. Um, and, and, and really try to argue him back into the kingdom of God. There was one moment where I was at the piano. I used to do this occasionally in my living room. And I was playing uh, this old song, it goes, uh, you are awesome in this place, mighty God. You are awesome in this place, Abba Father. You are worthy of all praise, and to you our lives we raise. You are awesome in this place, mighty God. And I sang it just over and over again. Now listen, I was kind of tone deaf at that age. Like, I probably wouldn't have been hired as a worship pastor in those days. But man, my heart was so for whatever God wanted, and, and I just love to be in his presence. And I sang it, and my brother came in the house, and he's making his food, and, and, and that didn't make me stop. I just kind of kept going, and then he starts getting frustrated, goes down to his room in the basement, and all he can hear are these words, You are awesome in this place, mighty God. And it's just beginning to reverberate. He goes, and he turns his TV on, and turns his head the old, like, garbage can sound system, like 18-inch speakers you don't see anymore. They got like real tiny, but yeah, it's just turning it up, blasting his sound system to where all he should hear is his music, but yet all he can hear is, you are awesome in this place, Abba Father, you are worthy of all praise, Amen. to you our lives we raise, Amen. you are awesome in this place. Mighty God, and it resounded. And he begins to break down. He shuts off his TV and just breaks down crying. And I'd love to say that he ran up and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> I didn't do that at that moment. In fact, he, was in, he ended up moving to South Carolina, was in Pastor Dan DeMay's youth ministry, gave his life to the Lord, and yet he tells this story to this day of one of the biggest... Now, he didn't say, Boy, John, your arguments... With me, they just changed my heart. They just really did something. He always talks about it. I've never been involved in something so special in my life that resounded in my heart so deep. 
There's a story in uh, 2 Samuel in the Word. My second thought is this. It's about the heart, not the appearance. It's about the heart and not the appearance. How many of you know it's easy to appear? In today's day and age, social media, it's easy to appear. Not quite as easy to be, right? I'll always post the pictures of me skinny on Facebook. You just know that, okay? They're not current pictures. They're very old. Okay. 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 5, there's a story of King David. He has now established his kingdom in Jerusalem, made Jerusalem the capital there. His desire is to see the presence of God, which in that day, this is before Christ, this is before the Holy Spirit, in that day is representative by the Ark of the Covenant. It's like a, a box that has the stone tablets that Moses uh, uh, received from the Lord on Mount uh, Sinai, and then it has cherubim on top of it. And, and this ark to the people of Israel represented the presence of God. Wherever it went, the blessing of the Lord followed, the provision of the Lord followed. And David gets into his kingdom and he says, boy, we need to get this back. So what he does is gather 30,000 people it's got to be fun to be a king. Like, 30,000 people, come on. I have this plan. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. I want the presence of God in my city. Anybody want the presence of God? Yes. So this is David's desire. Okay, three people. <laughs> yes! There we go. One loud one. So I love you, Robert. Um, so 30,000 people, and David's saying, how do we figure this out? How do we get these people? How do we get the presence of God? I know our forefathers, they did it a little slow. They did it a little dated. I've got a really nice current way that we can get this done. Let's set the ark of God on a cart, okay? A, a V6 ox cart that we can just just cruise this thing into Jerusalem, go, we'll get everybody there, it'll be a huge celebration, we'll start singing celebration, we'll, we'll, we'll invite the tambourine players, you know it's special when they invite the tambourine players, it's going to be loud, okay, and they get just really jazzed up, and they go out and do this, they have two people, Uzzah and Ahio, who are guiding the cart, okay, the drivers of the cart that's carrying the ark of God on it, and they have these, these people, and the Bible says that they danced with all their might. I would really like to see what that looks like, okay? I know what dancing with some of the might looks like, and it's not that pretty, and with all the might, it's not going to probably look pretty at all, but these guys are doing it, so they look like passionate lovers of God's presence. They have the look and the appearance that everything is awesome. All of the sudden, one of the oxen stumbles. The ark begins to slip off, and Uzzah reaches back to stable the ark to keep it from falling, and God's anger burns against Uzzah, and he dies right then and there. End of the party. How many know that would be a damper to the party? Yeah. They're like, what happened? The celebration stops. Everyone's mad at God. Why would God do this? Then they understand this is what we want to do. God, David is mad. They go, they leave the ark of God where it is and, and um, find out later that it's, it's blessing this house they left it at. And so they want to take it again, but they need to find out what happened. And so they discover three things that, didn't take that they didn't do that were actually a part of Levitical law that really prescribed the way how to transport this 
Ark of the Covenant or the presence of God. God laid it out in his word. A lot of times we think we're smarter than God, right? So in any case, there are a few things that were wrong with this picture. Number one, Uzzah and Ahio, the ones guiding the cart, were not Levites, the priesthood. And in Levitical law, only the priesthood, only the Levites were to touch this Ark of the Covenant. And even then, they could only touch it with poles. Basically, poles went through on either side of the Ark, and they could only touch the Ark through these poles. Any of you seen Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark? Remember they opened the ark and the guy melted? Scared the tar out of me when I was a kid. You look at it now, it's so fake. But in any case, you go through this thing, that's the way they had to touch it. The other thing is they carried the ark of God, the presence of God, on a cart. It probably seemed good to them, but the Bible prescribes that only the Levites could carry this cart on poles. Okay? And then the next thing they did was touch the ark. Now, granted, you would think like, boy, I I mean, he was trying to save it. But here's the thought here. There's a basic irreverence. Now, I'm not trying to be legalistic, but there's a basic thoughtlessness to the holiness of God. There's this unawareness of who God is in this moment. They've got the concept that God loves them. They've got the concept that God wants to be with them. But what they fail to do is start with step one, which is God is a holy God that commands the universe. And his glory far outweighs what our minds can even comprehend. His holiness is amazing. Many of you are like, oh, great, old school preacher coming out here. But here's the thought here. How can you really worship God when you only get one facet of who he is? I think the greatest part about the fact that we are allowed to worship the Lord is how great and how marvelous he is, how perfect he is, his strength, his power, his glory, and yet he calls us his friends. If you don't get that, then you just see him as just a friend and you can be upset at him or mad at him one day. But if you understand that, you'd be like, what an honor that he would call me to do this. So the right question to ask then is, how would you want to be worshipped today, Lord? What does your word say about it, God? You know, like, how how long would a, a relationship last if a gentleman is only getting a gift for his wife that he likes? Well, how would that look if, if for, for my wife's birthday and Christmas, I keep getting the things that I like? This is just dawning on some men out here now. <laughs> that might be why it's not working out. Guys, find out what your wife likes and you'll have a lot better relationship, okay? And yet when it comes to God, somehow this clamoring in today's society is I'll worship God my way. All right. So what else is missing here? I've got to hurry here. In 2 Samuel, this is after they've discovered, like, hey, we didn't inquire the Lord how to do this. In 2 Samuel 6, it gives a picture now. This is when they all have all come together. They're going to do the same thing and yet start with a right heart. Our heart is submitted. God, how do you want this to be done? Because we know when you're a part of it, then we become blessed. 
So how do you want to be worshipped? How do you want this done? And they've discovered this. Now they're all there. They're in the same place. Here's what they do. Six, uh, 2 Samuel 6, 12 says, When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, that's the Levites, had taken six steps, he, the king, uh, David, sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. This seems like a simple verse, kind of weird, that a lot of people would probably just walk over. But get the picture here. The Israelites get together, they're ready to celebrate, but instead of putting it on a cart, they pick it up, put it over their shoulders, and they go one, two, three, four, five, six. They set the ark down. They go then and build an altar to the Lord. They go and wrestle the bull by its horns down, and they present it to the Lord as a sacrifice. They take the fat calf and do the same. Then they pick up the ark and go one, two, three, four, five, six. And they set it down and they go build an altar and they bring a sacrifice before the Lord. And this happens from Obed-Edom's house all the way to Jerusalem. Making progress, right? They're going real fast doesn't work in our culture like that, does it? It's slow. Let me suggest it's messy. Brings me to my last thought, that in worship and really serving Christ in this life in general, it's not about what you do. See, because what you do can be clouded by wrong intentions. You can appear to do something. So it's not about what you do, but what you bring. Because what you bring can't be faked. One of the greatest gifts outside of salvation and the Holy Spirit that God has given us is the ability to come before him and lay down everything before God as a sacrifice. Are you guys following? Yeah. Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. A daily laying down. Let me explain this further. I love rivers. Am I the only one? Let's get a shout for rivers. <laughs> I really do. Ever since I was a kid, I used to say, Mom, Dad, wake me up when we pass a river. I don't care if it's uh, a creek. <laughs> I really didn't. Or if it's the Mississippi. I have always been amazed by rivers. Okay? Uh, my wife knows it. My kids know it. Every time we're traveling out, uh, we'll drive uh, down through the mountains. And every time we go through Glenwood Canyon, I'm like, look at the river. Look at the river. It's amazing. Yes. And here's what's amazing. I will go and literally just sit and look at rivers and be like, how does this happen? That the water is never in the same place at the same time, and yet it stays completely full. How does it get so much? This, this river. And when you think about rivers, God has literally used these things as a mechanism and as a tool to water the entire earth. There is no lake that just gets water. 
It all comes from these rivers, and God has ordained it. There's no drinking water that you get, no, no shower water or whatever you do that hasn't come from these rivers that have originated from heaven. Yet in the book of John, John 7, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams or rivers of living water will flow from within him. What this means is that God's intention for his people in a spiritual sense is that you are like the rivers to spread his good news to this entire world. That is his intention. His intention for you is not to be a stagnant pond. It was intended that we are like rivers testimonies that when the unbelievers see it, they see something just each and every day is coming out of his people. Let me tell you a little bit. You're, you're going, what is, how does worship play in this? Let me just share a little of my story. Eight years ago, my family and I decided to embark on an adventure with, with uh, a few core folks that were amazing, amazing people. And we were gonna go out to Vegas to start a church. And this was our mantra. We are gonna save the whole city of Las Vegas. I'm telling you, there wasn't a day that that vision wasn't cast. The whole city of Vegas. We would say this, we're gonna ruin the city of Vegas. Because if it all gets saved, that whole city goes under. I mean, we know that. And I was like, man, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this. We got our family only to be struck with the harsh reality that was before us. In 2008, when we left, Vegas was in the worst recession that it had ever seen. We had no jobs. We had very little money. We had very few people. And my wife, I remember, we drove into the town. She looked at me and goes, what did we do? And, I, and, and you know, this, this thing inside me is like, we, we followed the Lord. We're going to dig our heels in and make this happen. And each and every day I got more and more caught up in my own ethic. We're gonna make this happen. We're gonna make this happen. I can't let this fail. Too many people are watching. And it became more about proving myself than about just following God's word and, and things begin to work out. The church begin to grow and we begin to see this thing, but I still dug my heels in the ground and I would go to work during the day and come home at night and work all night at the church, meeting with people, canvassing neighborhoods and, and casting vision to this core team to the point where I was spending more time with other people than I was my own family. And what happened was, was my wife was like, hey, John, we've got dinner tonight. I said, once Vegas is saved, I'll get dinner with you. Basically, I didn't say that, but my actions, I was moving, moving. It got to the point where she resented everything that I was doing. And so I began to see her as the enemy. She doesn't know what God wants, and maybe, maybe I just need to move on. Maybe God's got somebody else for me. Can I be real with you? I begin to lose my mind. I begin to get so dedicated what I thought was the Lord's mission, but I didn't realize I had become wrapped up in pride that I even lost the very thing I was working so hard for. I found myself up on a pulpit resigning. I had filed for divorce. 
I was alone in Las Vegas. I had nothing. I'll never forget sitting down, literally this divorce is going through, and I sat across the table from my daughters and we had to share with my daughters, listen, mommy and daddy, we're in on the border restaurant. Mommy and daddy are, are getting a divorce. My oldest daughter screams ah! in this restaurant and will not stop. We had to leave the restaurant. And I left this restaurant. I turned to my wife and I said, the devil is a liar. And he lied to me. And it's a long story that I can't share all of it, but God began to turn my heart. I've got to do something to save my family. And I've got nothing. I've got nothing. I don't know what to do. So each and every day began this journey. God, I've got to start over. What steps to the right, to the left? I need your direction. I moved out here to Colorado and, and my family eventually followed and, and God did some amazing stuff. I mean, amazing, where we found ourselves among family and friends. Pastor John uh, renewed our vows. And we saw our family restored. And, and when I came back, I remember going like, God, what should I do? And he said, hey, I want you to work the nighttime janitor position at the church. I said, really? said, that's the position I have for you. Because I didn't realize that it was the most honorable position in the church at the time. He said, that's what I want you to do. I want you to clean my house. So I found myself mopping the floors late at night. And although God had begun to restore my family, there was this sinking thing going on inside of my head. What if? Boy, and, and it was like a burden every morning, every night. What have I done? How many lives have I ruined? How many folks have I manipulated? How much hurt can really be forgiven by my wife? How much of this and that and going through all of the stories? I literally could not go to sleep at night and get up in the morning. I would have to put my headphones on at work and listen to worship every single night. People thought I was just a recluse cleaning up after ministries that I once ran. And I found myself in the downstairs restroom here, mopping. And I was so dry. I needed something. And the song came on that said, fill me up, Lord. It's a song by United Pursuit, good worship song. And I, I said, God, I can't live anymore. I need you to fill me up. And I hit the mop on the ground and I said fill me up take this from me I can't live with what I've done the shame and the, the what if I would have stand could Vegas have been saved did I fail you God fill me up I'll never forget what God said to me it was clear as day he said John you're already full you're full with the wrong stuff. And it's dried up like fallow ground inside of you. And the only way to get rid of it is to go to the altar and let it go. Like, what are you talking about, Lord? Let it go. Let it go, John. Okay, all right. I'll let all of my shame go. All of my, my sin and all the things, all the, the offense that I've carried maybe with people. And here it is. And he said, no, all of it, even your successes. 
everything that's identified you up to this point, I want you to lay it down because that's what I purposed for my people. Jesus said, when the disciples said, how do we pray, Lord? He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And Jesus is saying, John, all this time you've led worship and you never recognize that one of the greatest tools with worship in your life is that I've given you a moment to let go of everything you've been so that I can give you my identity every day from glory to glory to glory. I have made my mercies for you new every morning. Every morning. So I got down and the floor was wet and I literally got down on the ground and I said, I give you my dreams. I give you my heart. I give you everything that I've done up until this point, even back when I succeeded and I thought I was something. I give you all my shame. I give you all my burdens because I recognize right here in this moment that the answer is Jesus. The answer will always be Jesus. The answer will never change from being Jesus. I need Jesus. I don't need success. And God said, that's right, because I never called you to a location. I never called you to a position. I called you to me. And each and every day, I want you to reveal me. Where do we go from here, Lord? Me. Come to the altar and find life. And that theory of resonance is resonating in this room right now. And so many of you know and feel it and understand. What worship is, is not something that you can necessarily do, but something that you can bring before the Lord. And today we're gonna sing a song and then we'll do it real quick. Our worship pastors will come and sing a song. Our campus pastors will dismiss. But while they sing this worship song, if you've been holding on to yourself, Jesus says, let it go. Find life in me and let me move through you because he didn't call you to be filled. He called you to be overflowing. In and out. In and out. Let God do it. So as I pray, I want you to focus on the Lord. It's easy to be in a hurry, but God's not about just a moment. He's about the process. So Father, we invite you into this place and we give you our worship. And if there's shame, if there's hurt, if there's failure, God, even if there's holding on to past successes, even if it was just as soon as today or yesterday, I pray we would let that go here this morning. We give you praise, we give you honor, we give you glory. I just feel just strongly that God just wants to speak in this place. In fact, what we'll do is end up just closing and, and have the song after, and if God's just moving on you, I want you to just not be in a, in a hurry we'll have the campus pastors right when I'm done praying just come up and dismiss but if God's just moving on your heart don't be in such a hurry let God just do it we love you Lord in Jesus name amen